0: Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Joining me today is Tur Demista. If you don't know who he is, where have you been hiding? Tur has been around the Bitcoin scene for many, many years and has done some amazing research and written some incredible articles. And yeah, he was one of the first people that helped me start understanding exactly what was going on and pulled me down to the Bitcoin rabbit hole. With one of his early interviews and presentations. I've been following ever since, uh, so a huge heartfelt thank you to Tur. Now, big news coming across from the other side of the pond the Bitcoin conference in Miami. You know when it is, start of April. Get over to btc conference, use the promo code BITTEN at checkout, all in caps, to get a 10% discount. Now, Europlebs. Do not fear, they have you covered. If you are unable to travel uh, due to any legal requirements and uh, travel restrictions imposed on people entering the US, at the point of the conference, you will get a full refund. So you can go ahead, buy your tickets and have that in your back pocket. But more importantly, why would you ever do that? You can always sell your ticket. It's not assigned to you personally. You will be able to sell it in a very active after-sales market. Please consider this. Get your tickets, plebs. Let's go. Let's represent Europe across there, across the pond. It's going to be huge. Now, if you're stacking, you know where to stack. In the UK, it's coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Across the pond, it's swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. And in Europe, you know by now, it's relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitten. You can use any of these services to DCA your way into Satoshi's. But please take control of anything that you're holding. Don't leave them on the apps. Don't leave them on the exchanges. Use the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only edition hardware wallet from shiftcrypto.ch forward slash Bitten or use the promo code Bitten at any of these places to get yourself some discounts. Take care, guys. Enjoy this one with Turf. Right, okay. Welcoming to the show is uh, Tua Demista. Actually, I need to ask, is it... Tur, do I roll the R or is it Tur? Or do I use my dumb British palette and just say tur? Like what's what's the actual way to pronounce your name?
1: Well, I would say growing up it would be tur. So there's like a slight R at the end. Uh but I it's it it's it has three sounds and two of them are impossible to pronounce for you know English speakers. So it's it's you can call me Arthur. I mean but most people say Tur or tour.
0: And where are you from?
1: I grew up in Belgium. I lived there more or less until
0: 2014. Right, okay. So Flemish, French, I think Spanish as well you have, English?
1: Yeah, my mother tongue is is Dutch. Yeah, it's the same as in Holland. And then we learn like French in school and they throw in some German as well and then English too, yeah. And you speak Spanish, is that right? A little bit, more passive. I never really committed to like really learning it.
0: Right, okay. The, the reason I asked is because I, I was watching one of your earlier um, conference talks and you had been talking about uh, spending some time in uh, in Argentina.
1: Yeah, yeah, I spent about eight months between Argentina and Chile in, uh, I think that was like 20, 2013, I think. A little earlier, probably.
0: All right, okay, Lauren. Well, I've already asked about five questions, so sorry, I've, I've stepped all over your... your... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is your this is your show. Your part of the show. Excuse um, me.
1: So uh, I heard that you write uh, newsletters to big uh, companies, and why? Oh, um, so yeah, I I started writing a newsletter back in two thousand eleven. And then later, I did um, like reports, which is kind of the same idea. It's just that those reports are more free, and I just distribute them. But the the idea is always that I'm trying to figure out a problem that I have for myself, or something I'm trying to understand, and then, you know, kind of forcing myself to explain it to other people makes it so that I can understand it too. So that's always been like the most gratifying. It's like to try and really figure something out, and then it matters less whether everybody loves it or people just kind of ignore it. Then I just I don't feel bad because I I, it was valuable for me to begin with. Does that answer your question? Yep. Do you like figuring
0: out problems?
1: Um. Or do you
0: just say, Daddy?
1: (laughs) Come do this. I figure out. I like. I feel good when I figure it out most of the time, but I do need help.
0: Mm -hmm, of course but some people just love figuring out problems whether they're mathematical problems or puzzles you do puzzles all the time that's figuring out a problem
1: i guess for me it doesn't always feel like i love it it's sometimes like it just kind of keeps me awake at night or i like worry about it and so then if i like i put in a lot of time it's like I, i i make it into something fun eventually but it often doesn't start off that way for me at least. When I'm doing like a a math problem, it starts at fun. And it turns out um, me being all over the place crying because I can't get through the problem. (laughs) Yeah, you get frustrated. Yeah. Do you ever explain math or other things to other people? Bitcoin a bit, but that, but otherwise, no, I don't really explain anything. Well, I found that with Bitcoin as well. Like when I try and explain it to other people, that helps me to understand it better. Um, Because I have to like explain it kind of logically.
0: And they say that the best way to um, learn something new Mm. is once you've learned it, teach someone else immediately what you've learned. And that helps you stick it. And it helps exactly what Ter's saying. Saying here is helps you kind of join all of those dots that are still kind of still floating around in your brain a little bit.
1: So it looks like your dad is learning about podcasting by explaining it to you.
0: <laughs> this has been the journey, hasn't it? How much have we learned doing this podcast? A lot. A lot. You know, just setting up, getting different equipment, all of this kind of oh, stuff. The
1: people who give us. Uh
0: yeah we've learned from uh, tour this is going to be the 194th episode obviously we've had some return guests so we've we've been exposed to over 180 different people from all around the world and one thing in common is the their their interest in bitcoin but otherwise they've come from all walks of life and different countries
1: wait what do you say about the bitcoin
0: Uh, that that's the one thing we have in common
1: yeah, but some are just painted or some are just
0: artists, yeah. musicians. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not an artist, I'm not a musician, and I don't live in the countries that they live in. But we have something in common: Bitcoin, which joins us and you know sparks these conversations. It's been an amazing journey. Do you have any uh, more
1: questions for Tor? Uh, no. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Pleasure to meet you. Bye, bye. Pleasure to meet you. Bye, Lauren. Oh do you have kids mate i don't know no we we have plans but uh only only a dog so far
0: (laughs) well you're i mean like i said i was watching your i was trying to find the interview that was critical to my orange pilling and that was your interview on real vision I think it was the first one you did, so probably back fourteen, fifteen. I can't remember exactly where.
1: You mean with Grant Williams? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I um, I flew out uh, to to their offices for that.
0: Where was that based?
1: It was uh, Cayman Island. That's where the real the Real Vision offices were. Probably oh. still are.
0: Okay, so that must have been later. That must have been like sixteen, seventeen. I'm getting my dates mixed up.
1: I want to say on Real Vision before that, uh, I did I did presentations like I would kind of, you know, give an update or like kind of talk about right. the Bitcoin markets and that started in 2015, I'm pretty
0: sure. That's what I saw then. That's oh, okay. the, the, the early like presentations and stuff <clears> that you were. Um, so I was trying to find them today to uh, just go back for a little bit of nostalgia. And um, but I think it's still behind a paywall and I've kind of rage yep. quit uh, Real Vision. <laughs> Along with many other pure Bitcoiners, as you know, you're smiling and nodding, you know why. Uh, but what I did come across was your presentation in 2013 at a Bitcoin conference. I think in California. I, I don't know. San I've Jose, never... yeah. Right. So I'd never seen that before, and you know, it struck me again how young you looked. Uh, so I, I mean, how, how old are you? Do you mind sharing or not?
1: Oh yeah, I'm. Um, I think I'm three uh 36 almost i mean my birthday is uh coming up uh, right in december but yeah 36.
0: so when you're giving that presentation you must have been like 27 28. yeah and it's like it still blows me away like how eloquent that you were speaking about it and this was one of the big things for me when i first started uh watching you on on real vision i'm like this young guy is so well put together his his the way that you were explaining it um, just clicked with me so much that that was such a huge part of, of my journey down to the, you know, the bottom of the Bitcoin rabbit hole and back up and back down again. You know what that's like uh, following that roller coaster. So, you know, a a pure heartfelt thank you for, for all of the work that you were doing back wow. then. Wow, uh, that's really amazing. Appreciate what, a,
1: what a payoff. That's a, like, because I was really... I had a lot of, especially in 2013, I had a lot of like stage fright. And so I really worked hard on that presentation to like memorize it and like really like kind of own it um, because I was afraid of like choking and things like that. And then by 2015, I felt a bit better. But still, like I would put a lot of work in really trying to. And, and we were like living in Mexico at the time. So we it was hard to even find a space that wasn't noisy. So like it was... Um, Yeah, good times. Um, But but so it was kind of surreal to like record it in like our little apartment and then like to see it go out and then to see Real Vision grow because that was just the beginning of Real Vision.
0: Yeah, Um, correct. And I remember speaking with Grant because uh, like I discussed in in our DMs, uh, he and I had become friends in Singapore just as he was starting that with Raul. Uh, And, um, you know, I was one of the very early subscribers just to show support. I wasn't expecting it to be what it was. I mean, I think I remember watching the first interview, long form interview with Mark Hart. I'm like, whoa, this is something new. This is something completely different. And I remember saying to Grant, well, what about all this Bitcoin thing? You guys going to touch on that or just, you know, give that a wide berth? He's like, just you wait, Princey. we got a couple of good things coming up. And that's when it started coming out. And uh, yourself, and I think they had Trace on early and Wences. Uh, it was um, like, wow, this this really got me digging deeper. because, wow.
1: um, be- Yeah, those are some major orange pill uh, powerhouses right there.
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah, you, you were right there with them, man. <clears throat>
1: No thanks yeah I, I mean like I, I really meant what I said to Lauren like it, it really you know like like all these doubts and like I, I really like have to I have to make like a thesis that's well substantiated for me to you know kind of feel the the confidence to do to make my financial decisions like it really is like a, so I don't know like whatever qualities I had it's kind of like it's like I, I got to thank my own anxiety sometimes. Like, all right, it, it helped me be thorough, and and, uh, and and apparently that does help other people too.
0: And you know, like, you know, to hammer this point home, and then we'll move on. <clears throat> In your mid twenties, you are standing up there alongside uh, some of the some some investment managers that CIOs that might have been into a twenty five year career at that point, and you are telling them, laying out professionally this is why you need to invest in bitcoin it's awesome mate honestly i i I hope you you're proud of the work that you've done yeah
1: very proud yeah absolutely (laughs) and like you know even like uh i'm pretty sure uh barry Silber told me that like one of the first things he ever saw was my 2013 bitcoin presentation and like that really you know helped him on the path and yeah it's been i guess i think being in your early 20s like when i learned about bitcoin it you have like the luxury of time like i'm noticing that now like i'm in my 30s like i i i really have to consciously choose where i make my deep dives but at the time i was like i i mean i looked into like uh lenr like low energy nuclear reaction which is like you know cold fusion basically like i was thinking about like all kinds of things to like possibly, invent. and it turns out it was a huge scam, but like, you know, it definitely is something that, um, I think that's what really also made the difference. I had the time to really apply myself. Um, whereas other people, you know, and it, it was kind of a, a good side effect of having dropped out of school as well. Like I wasn't so tied into having to, uh, you know, research was literally my job. It was like my dream job, like doing the newsletter. I could just do it all day.
0: Dropped out of school. All right, this is you. You're taking us down the rabbit <laughs> hole. I love it too. I love it. Mm. Um, I, I, I try and tell people um, that we need to change that to uh, you opted out of school. You know, to, to opt out is different to drop out. But it's an obviously a fiat like term, a fiat term that has been pushed on us to hang that label around our neck, as Gatto would uh, say. You know, hang the label around people's necks. You're a dropout no, we got to turn that around. You opted out because you looked at the situation that was surrounding you and you made a better choice. What? Why Why did you make that choice? What was going on at that point?
1: Well, when I was in high school, I mean, I even remember it being in elementary school. It was like, why are we learning about, I think it was like the Venn diagrams. Like, why are we learning this? Like I asked my teacher and she was like, well, ask again in high school. Like they'll explain why. So like she was kind of rolling her eyes. Like she'll, you know, they'll explain it to you. And then And then in high school, like, I was like, why are we learning this? Oh, but it's all for university. And so I was really kind of like, okay, okay. Like I'm, I'm, I'm withholding judgment. I'm waiting for this big thing to to pay off. And so I really kind of, you know, uh, amped up this fantasy in my head that university was going to be amazing. And I was like looking forward to it. And so, and so every time, like I started, you know, philosophy in Leuven and, 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 um, it was like flying way above my head. And I, I couldn't, I was like 17. I graduated a bit early. And so that, and then I was like, well, I had a great time going to this alternative school in elementary school. So let's just learn, let's switch. And I'm going to learn teacher elementary school. And so I, I started doing that. And then just, I guess, and then well, that's another story, but like I did, I changed again and I, I went back to university, like social sciences. First, actually, my first year and a half was African language and culture. So it's like, I want to go to Africa, like, or like do something. It was like more like, I want to do something good in the world. And I had read like Philip Gurevich's book on, you know, the one in genocide and a few other books. And I was like, oh man but like, I don't want to be naive. Like I want to kind of know what I'm doing. So like, let's just do be serious and do African studies. But so every time I just felt like disappointed. Like I felt disappointed in the students around me. Like they were like, they didn't have like the, the motivation I had hoped like, or the passion or, and, uh, and and you know I'm not, I, I, I definitely don't feel um, you know, resentful whatsoever against you know, higher education in general, but my experiences were not good. And so, because I had this like, but I'm waiting for the big thing. I think that's what gave me the courage to just drop out. And also of course, Belgium uh, higher education is extremely subsidized. So it's not a big financial burden on the family to, you know, switch around or try new things, even though it's not, it's still a taboo to do that. It, it was really hard at the time. Like, I felt like I was failing and like, I would meet, I would like be selling shoes in some store and I would meet, uh, you know, a history teacher of mine. And I could just see the disappointment in his eyes. Like after I, he asked me like, Oh, what are you doing? And he was, thought I was going to tell him like, Oh, I'm working on my thesis. And, you know, my final year. And no, I was like, you know, I dropped out and it just like, I could tell just, it, it, it was hard. There's really um, a lot of taboos around, you know, opting out like you say yeah
0: it's the social construct that's built around that is just so oppressive not only is it you know your parents that you know of course you don't want to let them down and you feel as though that you are but they've got their own story to tell and they like telling people that their son or their daughter is being successful and they're doing this and they're doing this and yada yada your peers your peer group of course the people that you've grown up going through elementary school with um, you know that you'd you'd like to think that your friends have got your back but you know you've only got two or three good friends within elementary school everybody else just wants the worst for you and thinks you know like oh look at that guy he didn't make it he's failing you feel that pressure and then you feel the pressure of course from your professors and teachers those people that should have a vested interest in 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 what you're doing But then again, probably the incentives are aligned to the fact that if you're not getting a good grade, then that's gonna reflect badly on them. And that's what's keeping them whipping the stick. The whole thing is just a a massive mess. And this is how we originally connected on Twitter. When you posted something, I answered um, underneath with the the little video clip of John Taylor Gatto's six purposes of school. And then you just come straight back. I met him. Here's a video clip of me sitting at a dinner table with him and him talking about, um, who was he talking about, Tolstoy or something? Like,
1: Tolstoy, yeah, That Tolstoy had started a school back in the day.
0: Explain that situation. How did you end up at a dinner table with John Taylor Gatto? And what's your interest in his work and alternative education and Sudbury Valley and you know do, uh, democratic schooling? Because you've clearly been down this rabbit hole and I don't think many Bitcoiners... Uh, would would know this about you. I've never heard you talk about it, so it'd be fascinating to hear you, you know riff on that.
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, well, I guess the the ghetto the John Taylor ghetto situation came about uh, in in that we were putting together um, a little school. like we were starting a little private school in the Netherlands a uh, subbury school. And the, uh, the regulatory climate was very hostile. The inspection is very hostile because the Netherlands has a school duty, whereas like, other countries often have like, the duty to educate, which is on the parents. And countries that have a school duty, like the Netherlands, Germany, uh, Spain, uh, Greece, uh, the fact that you have to send your kid to a school gives the government the power to decide which is and which is not a school. And that's where they get you. And that's where they can you know, really hurt the parents, like fine, giving them fines or, or even worse. Um, so, so that was kind of the context. And so we wanted to like create something positive. And uh, the, um, the title, we organized a conference and the title was Why Schooling? Why do on And so I remember making the website for it and we had some local speakers. And then uh, Peter and Crystal, who were the the co-founders of the school, like they were, um, they just always managed to like pull off these uh, incredible things. And so somehow they reached out to John Taylor Ghetto who like lives in upstate New York. He was like late seventies at the time, like, or I think he was maybe mid seven, I I, I forget, but I I think he was past 70. Uh, And he like drove out six hours to, you know, Kennedy Airport and flew to Holland and yeah he became the the main speaker at the the conference and so you know we hosted him and we went to dinner with him and uh, and so yeah I, I got to have a few conversations with him he was like he was delightful and obviously so knowledgeable
0: what pulled you down the the rabbit hole in the first place of of trying to create your own school because you would have been so young at this point like you know
1: yeah I mean and, and I, I even started with Sudbury. 2005, like I was like 22. Um, that was, I had like a, a bunch of things I did in, in, in Belgium. But so I guess the context for me is when I was about nine, my mom asked me, hey, like, would you be interested in changing schools? Like a colleague of mine is helping out this little alternative school. It turns out it was a frene school, like Celestin is is this uh, French, you know, a bit like Marie Montessori, like that kind of person who would like have their own philosophy. And, and of course he also got in trouble with the government just like Montessori and Steiner. And, you know, they they all do the the pathbreakers. Um, And, uh, but so, yeah, that's like, there's the philosophy behind it. And so some people were doing that in Bruges where, where I'm from. So I went there. And so literally I went there the first year of operations of that school. And so we were in a building, turns out there was a giant crack in the wall. It started falling down. We had to like move after a few months to another building like we changed locations I think three or four times in the three years that I was in the school and then you see the the teachers rotate and, and and it was like so it was this kind of I remember the energy like people were just so excited to do it and there was this kind of vibrant energy and of course there were conflicts but it was like different I I really the difference from The little under the church school I had gone to up to nine years old was really palpable. Like it was like this, it really, you know, it it stuck with me like forever. And so then I went to high school in this kind of um, uh, university prep Catholic school. Like the the motto of the school was ora et labora, which is literally pray and work. (laughs) So it's like very different, very like strict um you know tradition it's all about all about that stuff um we've been here since the 19th century um but so yeah and I felt really burnt out from school and so that kind of when I was 18 19 I started to think again like oh man and and because I didn't know what I wanted to study I did a year of uh, being a volunteer in Norway like I did that for a year and one, I swear I'm getting, there's an arc to this. <laughs> but so there I met this uh, uh, German girl who's also uh, um, uh, a, um, a volunteer at, the, at the, the school in Norway. And uh, sh- her parents were homeschooling her her brothers and sisters. And actually, eventually they, they did get in trouble with the government for that. Like, can you imagine? Like you're just trying to homeschool and even that's not possible. Um, but so she had this book on her called Pursuit of Happiness I think it's like the lives and works of the Sudbury Valley alumni or something. It's the subtitle. And weirdly enough, that book does not discuss the model at all. Um, but it talks about what happens to the kids after they leave, you know, Sudbury Valley School, which is for people who are not aware uh, not familiar, it's like a unschooling in a box. Like it's kind of, you know, unschooling in, in a in a structured environment. And they've done it since 1968, I think. Um but so that's where I, I learned about that book. Uh, actually, I think it was one or two years later, like we, we, uh, we did a scout's camp together and there was no Internet. And so I just read it like otherwise I might not have. And so it just sort of I don't know. I didn't really I didn't really think to look into what the model was, but it sort of stuck with me. And then in 2005, I saw a little flyer in Ghent where I was studying. We're starting a separate school, and it was like, oh, we're you know meeting up every week above this cafe, and it's the starting group, and if you're interested, and so I just went, and then turns out there was another um, uh, kid, like kind of a kid my age, like also 22, and he kind of had homeschooled partly, and so, and 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 so we were the younger parts. We became the younger parts of that founding group, and then in 2006 the school was open, and it was the first separate school in. In Belgium, and then I did an internship. Eventually, in the school in Holland, and then I met the you know the founders in 2007. So that was like two and a half years of my life. Like I really was very, very, very passionate about you know the sub model and, and unschooling in general, and uh, and it was kind of very uncareery that kind of move to like spend so much time doing that because the only thing I I mean, there was no money in it whatsoever. Like I actually, I think what it brought to my career, quote unquote, is the motivation to find something that would make me money because I wanted to send my kids to a place like that. And I realized if I didn't make some money, I would never be able to afford it. Like it's, it has to be a private school. And so so I think in a way, it really fueled my like ambition to you know, to, to, to make a career for myself.
0: Must have also rubbed off on you to want to educate because that's what you're doing.
1: Yeah, although at the time, and and I think maybe still, like we were always like, you know, people who want to help out with the school, if they tell us that they're teachers, that's like a big red flag right away, (laughs) because they're going to have an agenda, they're going to want to like, you know, um, educate the children in a certain particular, you know, pedagogically, pedagogically, uh supposedly sound way um but yeah I hear what you're saying yeah like I mean it's more like it's it was the initial thing was like oh my god I would have loved going to a school like this like I felt like I was just bored out of my mind in high school there was so much I could it was also like mourning like that like the loss of all the stuff I could have done in those six seven eight years when I was you know being forced to learn all those things that I didn't understand why I had to learn them that definitely was part of it too.
0: That's such a tough pill to look back on, isn't it? Like the, when you realize the opportunity cost of, yeah. of that, especially if you've done the four years extra uh, study for that degree that you never end up using in your adult life and you carry the burden of all that debt. It's a kick in the nuts, man. It's, it's yeah, not... And
1: talk about, you know, talk about the sunk cost fallacy. I mean, like so many people, you know, you start school at like five and then you exit university at what, 22. And so you have like so many years invested in a certain way of a certain philosophy, basically. And so to then unwind that and maybe, you know, try and do it differently for your kids or yeah, I, I don't know how that went with you. Uh, but but um, I think it's very hard. I think it's really, really hard for people to to do that, to like deprogram yourself in a way.
0: It's the toughest thing once you make the decision as a parent to homeschool or unschool or world school. That's what we did. We took our kids out of school and started traveling. And we did uh, like two and a half years of, you know, traveling around the world wherever we could and making it last as long as we could and using our surroundings to layer on education, you know, whether that's history, geography, and you, you mix in math, but you do it your way, God forbid that you should be in charge of uh, and have an influence over your kids education like you said earlier you know Norway and Holland Holland notoriously will take your kids away from you if you're not sending them to one of their schools and that you know the the way that they kind of dress that up is well we allow all of these other schools because you can choose Steiner and you can choose Montessori and whatever else but they're not true Steiner schools and they're not true Montessori schools they are you know a complete i think my did my audio go weird are we back you know, that they're a complete bastardization of those philosophies. I mean, if Maria Montessori was to walk into a school now, a Montessori school in air quotes, I think she'd just be flabbergasted at what, you know, her work has become.
1: Um, probably the same with Steiner. like mm-hmm. I think you're right. it's it's kind of like it's almost like you're looking at a building that like that's like, you know, built out of concrete slabs and and um and then they put like a little bit of like, you know, like a kind of like a pillar here and there. And it's like a pastiche. Like it, it 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 has a slight semblance of what it was meant to be, but it's not classical architecture or whatever. I'm into architecture lately. But it's like I, I feel like that's that is. And it's part I think a large part of why it's become so homogenous is just because of how the bureaucracy works. Like you know, the subsidies really create this and, and all the regulation around it, the management, it creates this um, you know, mainstream is, a, uh, no, centralization, really. It's this like a homogenization of education.
0: It's completely authoritarian and totalitarian. Mm. It's, you know, it's completely centrally planned by unelected bureaucrats. It's everything we hate in the Bitcoin world. And it's just passed down and forced down your kids' necks. And it's like, I, I love the fact that there are more Bitcoiners waking up to this um, because, I, I went down both rabbit holes or rabbit holes around the same time back in 2014. That's when we left our previous life and started traveling. But coming back to the point, before I went off on that little rant, before the hardest thing for new parents to do is to de-school themselves. That you've got to do that first because you're still How carrying is that so for much. You? Oh man! Like learned the 2014? hard way.
1: Like did you run into like you know? But like the but this has to be that way. And then it's like maybe not. Was that hard?
0: the first mistake we made for any homeschooling noobs you know we, we did the the classic mistake we tried to stick to a timetable uh you know this again you're facing all of these social pressures and it's like right this shit is on me now so we've got to step up we've got to make sure we've got a strict schedule if you bring a a school like atmosphere into the home it's never going to work but you you can't you can't see that when you've after you've made that huge decision and you feel that pressure, you fall into the trap of trying to replicate school in the home. Mm -hmm. It's a disaster. So before anyone listening to this, before anyone does make this decision, you got to de-school yourself first, because you have been so systemized, and you're carrying traumas that you don't even realize that you're carrying. Um, I don't know, like, you know, for for me, psychological baggage was uh, being told at a very young age that I was, you know, absolutely hopeless at math and that just shut me down completely to to any kind of numbers and when they introduced, tried to introduce algebra and you're mixing letters and numbers it's like no man this does not make any sense but because i had such a an awful teacher and an awful experience that you know <laughs> the, the the fact i went on to go and work in foreign exchange for 18 years my math teacher would never never have ever have guessed that, right? What do you mean? You're never going to have a career with numbers, but you carry that psychological baggage with you for the rest of your life. So when it comes to homeschooling our kids, I felt like an awful anxiety over that, Like, you know, oh my god, what if they go through the same kind of bullshit I had to go through, and they're they're never going to be good at math or deemed good at math, and Mm. they're going to feel like an idiot, and they're going to feel thick. Um, You know, all of this kind of rubbish that comes up in you and stops you sleeping in the evening, and makes you want to put them back in a system because that's where they're safe uh you know let the professionals do it yeah yeah you got to fight it. it it's really really
1: tough yeah yeah i can imagine cuz yeah you don't want to shortchange your kids and and i mean and, and there is so much there's so many narratives that are just it's like the air that we breathe like of course you know they 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 need to um they need to know this and they need to know that even though well, like when you take a step back it's like but wait a minute like how has the job market changed over the past 40 years? Or like, or even the question like so few people ask and there's actually not a lot of, I mean, there's a lot, actually more and more, but but in 2005, I I didn't find a lot of good literature on like, well, how did schooling start? Like how, you know, how does that go back? And there are some narratives that kind of talk about 19th century US and stuff. But I think that the real roots are, are probably, um, you know, pietism in Prussia like even before the Prussian state got involved there was uh, there was this book that blew me away I just I just googled it uh, absolutism and the 18th century origins of compulsory schooling in Prussia and Austria by James Van Horn Melton
0: holy crap
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's I mean and it's a mouthful but it but it really like it it he's such a great historian and it's so well documented and he just really lays out how these little elements like having a clock in in the classroom that was conscious because children had original sin and they had to feel that you know uh, laziness is the devil's the devil's ear pillow and that you you had to have this pressure on you to work and um, you know society is like this human uh, corpse and you are just one of the limbs and so you have to know your place and so that's why in Germany you had this Evolution towards—it's like keeping people in the class that they are born in. Like if your your dad is a lumberjack or whatever, you have to, you know, because that's your place in society. You are the hand or whatever it is, or like um, the the uh, um, being forbidden to play. You know that was from Pietism. It was it was sinful to play or dance, uh, and so recess was very limited and very controlled. Also, permanent supervision. I mean, it came from the orphanage. Like it was, I mean, I'm sure, you know, like all of this, but but it's like to me, it was like, wow. It was like, that made it easier to not uh, feel bad about shedding some of that, some of those dogmas that I grew up around because it was like, okay, well, but you tell me, like you tell me another story of why school was so amazing and why it is the way it is. Like, tell me the virtuous origins tell me the the things that I, that make me feel excited about being in this environment or sending my kids there and I never really found it it's like people like John Teleghetto who's actually who are actually digging up the real history which of course is not being taught in school right I mean duh you know it's, <laughs> it's kind of the big scam
0: <laughs> no they, they don't want you to know the history of 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 how school was formed absolutely not and peter gray does a great job as well and we'll, we'll come back to that because uh, it was great to see you in the clubhouse room the other day uh, but for those people that might not be um fully up to speed on exactly what we're talking about how would you describe a democratic school to like a complete noob like the sudbury valley style yeah well
1: i think I think democratic schools is a wider umbrella that you could argue separate schools are a part of. Uh, democratic schools, and I, I went to um, um, democratic school conference in Berlin once in 2005. And so I met a lot of people who, who are in those schools and it's a it's a, quite a big variety of schools. I think that what they have in common is that they uh, will involve um, you know the kids, the students uh, in the decision making process of the school, literally having an, because every school, even traditional schools have some kind of, oh, student board or whatever. But like the difference with a democratic school is that you're actually talking about rules that matter. Maybe, you know, wh- how, what times are the school open? What rooms, what is the purpose of this room or that room? Like really decisions that matter. I think that's what the democratic schools have in common and so, even a school like uh, in in the UK, there was Sand School, and then um, I'm trying to remember now. Um, there's this famous school. It's a it's a uh, I'm pretty sure it's a boarding school, but it's basically a school where uh, there are teachers teaching classes, um, but the kids can choose you know which classes to take, and they could, could just kind of run around and switch, and they are free to not go to the classes also. Um,
0: Would that be some And Hill? so,
1: but then a secondary school. Is where you combine the democratic decision-making process, which the founders, um, they were looking at the New England town model. Like you know, the, in towns historically, people would just uh, vote by referendum. On they would just have, uh, I think, not didn't call it referendum. You would just come together in the church building every every month or so, and then that's where the rules of the community were made. Um, so that's that's what they use. But then they combined that with. Uh, in their words, the um, the kind of constitutional rights and the constitutional freedoms, and just applying that to kids and being like, you know, I'm not going to force you to do to learn things you don't need to learn. I am going to try and have rule of law in the school, which means you can't hurt anyone. You you know you you can't use space that's not meant for you. Things like that. Um, but basically, there's unschooling. You know, that's we're we're going to abandon. Um, a set curriculum. We're gonna abandon age groups, which is also a thing that goes back to, you know, 18th century Pietism. Um, and so we're gonna basically see what emerges. And what did emerge was uh, what they call corporations: is that you p- kids will voluntarily associate with each other. For example, they want to, you know, make food, and they might even want to distribute it in the school and make food for other kids. And so then you need resources and decision-making and rules. And so then they form a corporation that manages all that. And so there's several of those in this, in every, pretty much every Sudbury school has those. Um, I think that's probably in a nutshell what a Sudbury school is. And maybe what also sets it apart from sometimes democratic schools is the, uh, the kind of enforcement of the rules. Uh, Whereas in, in a lot of democratic schools, what I've seen is that there's not really a clear mechanism to do that. It's more like, the teachers. And that was, that was how I experienced the alternative school as in elementary school as well. It was like, you know, yeah, we can hear you about, you know, how you want the rules to be, but we're going to enforce them. Whereas in a separate school, anyone there's, there's even a specific little form for it. You can write a complaint, you know, just as a year, it doesn't matter if you're five years old, you ask someone to help you if you're 16, or even if you're a staff member, you can also write a complaint. And so those complaints are then, um, Reviewed every day. There's a meeting by the judicial committee, and uh, and so that's a little court you could call it, right? There's people who um, will will read. The, everybody has a role. Like there are people who go get the witnesses and find out what happened, and then and then you have to like you know take the the rule book of the school and really define exactly which rule was probably broken, and then you vote. Do we agree that it, you know there is this whole, and and some people call it the heart of the school, like that that whole process. So, But by being on different sides, sometimes, you know, you're more like a lawyer. Sometimes you're kind of being accused of something and then there's consequences that that is one of the core, you know, learning experience for kids to go through in in a separate school.
0: Well, that's real socialization, right? If we look at the, you know, the the use of the word to socialize, that is getting somebody to socialize in the actual world that exists around them. Whereas in the school system, it's a complete opposite.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, authoritarianism, right? I mean, you just have to, I remember feeling so frustrated and hurt about the rules in the school. Like they would do they would do mass punishments. Like in, mm-hmm. in the morning, we had to stand in rows waiting for the teacher to come get us to go to the classroom. It's probably hard for some people to imagine that that still happens, but it was like, we had to stand in rows, be quiet. Uh, I even, I, one time I almost got punished for yawning Uh, And and if there was a kid late, we had one superintendent, if one child was late arriving uh, in the school ground, he would force everyone to wait longer, like a hundred kids. So it was like these collective punishments and just very, very unjust. It just really always uh, got to me at how it just, it almost, I don't know, it's like a prison environment. Like people don't really experience that anymore in the adult world.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. And for for those of people that are listening um, about the Sudbury Valley, our own boy, Ben Prentice, co-founder, uh, co-creator of WTF Happened in 1971, was a Sudbury boy. So he went through the, uh, the, the one in Massachusetts. And look what look how he's turned out, people. So, you know, we're in good hands. It's not like these kids go to these schools and they just run around, you know, turning cars over and lighting shit on fire, which we think which especially the boomer generation think would happen if we just let kids be kids. Uh, no, it, it, it doesn't happen. They find what they're interested in, they find a passion, this self-directed education, self-directed learning, mixing age groups is so key. And this is what uh, Peter Gray was talking about in, in the clubhouse room the other day, which you turned up to and uh, fielded your question to, to Peter. That was amazing uh, to, to have you in there. Um, how did you find his work originally?
1: He also came to Holland. Um, he visited our school and, um, um, I think the time, the time he came, I had already, uh, moved on. I was, was like, I was, I became too poor at some point and I, I, I really <laughs> had to find something. So I translated books. And so in, in, uh, about mid 2008, I think I moved on and he visited the school, I think 2009 or something. Um, but we knew of him, like, you know, he's the father of, um, of um, scott david gray who i think is a staff member yeah, some kind of staff a... member at sabri valley yeah so so basically he he's of the almost the same generation as the founders of sabri valley and he knows everybody there and and uh and also the whole circuit is pretty small like once you go into like democratic schools maybe you're talking about i don't know maybe 200 schools or something. And then once you start talking about sub schools, maybe you're talking more 20 schools. It fluctuates a bit, 25 maybe uh, worldwide. So, you know, everybody, there's sometimes a conference here and there and everybody knows each other.
0: Did you meet Jerry Mintz at any stage?
1: I, I did in Berlin, yeah, yeah from Iro.
0: Yeah. I remember yeah. him
1: playing ping pong. He was really he into that. Li- <laughs>
0: he's a great guy uh he yes from from aero uh, alternative education resource i can't remember yep. what the uh, organization
1: um
0: yep. so we've had him on a couple of times on uh, the the, uh, the the conference the online conference what is it no
1: school and recess all day I, I remember like he wrote a book with the no recess all day or something as a title
0: i can't remember i don't remember oh no that.
1: recess all day recess
0: recess all, all day no school probably yeah um and Pat Veranger as well is another great guy that uh, we've um, managed to speak to a great deal. But uh, yeah, your your question in in Clubhouse was uh, actually my wife's favorite question. She was listening in the other room, and right. because you asked uh, Peter uh, about the advent of social media, and uh, you know how should we be as parents? How should we be policing? kids exposure to computers and you know handheld devices and whatever else and social media in, in particular uh i was blown away by his answer i wasn't expecting it i think you were probably impressed but my wife was like oh my god he's just nailed that that's amazing so uh, um if you want to share with the listeners uh, you know what we were talking about and and what peter's advice was
1: yeah so uh my question was about you yeah, know the internet and social media and like how does that mesh with you know, the philosophy of letting your kids be be free in deciding how they spend their time entirely. Um, because, you know, people have made the argument that there's this addictive, um, there's addictive an addictive side to social media, kind of, kind of like maybe we're, maybe social media today is, is kind of like the way what cigarettes were, uh, you know, maybe 30 years ago where, People were aware that yeah, there may be harmful, but maybe not the extent or something like that. Uh, at least a lot of people are getting concerned about um, because because the the whole way that it's designed is to keep you engaged. So that kind of was where my question was coming from. Like, well, what do what what do you say to people like that? People who have concerns about that, and he um, he he cited um, uh, research that um, I think it was the gist was like that. Um, there's a very slight, you know, contribution, like extremely slight in certain uh, girls, especially to depression. There's like 0.3% or something. Um, and that um, uh, I think that uh, people, uh, children will use social media and internet a lot if they don't have an alternative of playing outside or hanging out with friends. But if they do, they will usually do that. And And I remember, in uh in Sudbury valley as well it was like kind of the opposite concern like parents are like but are these children reading enough you know i'm walking around the school and like nobody's reading and and the kids would say like but i read when i'm at home like at home it's boring and that's when i read and then at school i hang out with my friends and we you know build a tree house and you know make all kinds of stuff um and so it's kind of it's kind of interesting the the parallel between those arguments. I do have to say that I th- when I think about it for my own kids, and maybe I'll, I'll change my mind. But like, like we've been like me and my wife, we've been struggling to to dial down. Uh, I guess you could call it like internet addiction or you know that kind of fast paced scrolling behavior. Um, and so I I do think there's you know there's an addictive element to that. Um, and so I. I I mean, obviously I need to think about it a lot more, but I think that it's okay to have a different, to have different ways of doing things depending on the environment. Like one of the things that struck me with some unschoolers or, 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 or people who are into like laissez-faire education is that it kind of, it can kind of go the other extreme where you kind of venture into a neglectful area where you're like, oh, my kids have got to figure everything out. But then they're like, you know, I always imagine, and this was from talking to um, um, Michael Mattesu, who's a staff member at Sudbury Valley. I remember asking him, like, how do you decide what to, how to act in the school? Like, I always feel like there's different ways of talking to the kids. and And he's like, well, my rule of thumb is like, I imagine sitting at a table with this child when they're 20 years old and they remember everything I did and remember everything I said back in you know and sometimes I did things before I was able to really explain why I did them but so my litmus test is I imagine that future conversation and can I explain myself or can I you know justify that hey this was to keep you safe or you know this was to really kind of instead of oh, it's just my agenda, or I was just forcing you to do it because I had a bad day or whatever, like, you know, you kind of, so that's always helped me as like a guiding thing. And so when I think about social media, uh, at least for the moment, I, I think maybe at home, we will have rules about it. like when, you know, I don't know, like no phones at the dinner table or, you know, things like that. And 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 it's okay to have rules at home to like manage your household, And then you can have a different experience. I don't know, when you go out of the house or whatever, it's kind of like with your dog is like, which I I don't mean to make the analogy all the way, of course, but it's still like, you know, there are times when your dog needs to work and it's also so that it doesn't run under a car, like it needs to be, you know, in a certain place. And there are other times when it can just run for free and do what it wants. And so, I don't know, it's a long winded answer, but I'm, I'm still very actively thinking about this stuff
0: yeah well you know we we battle it every day uh we've got we've got the four kids 16 and 14 uh you know that if you were allowed them they would be glued to the bloody things all day long and uh you know you you do have to enforce some kind of rules but you get a lot of pushback believe me it's uh it's pretty difficult but what what i took away from peter's Mm. um argument uh against not argument his his response uh was the fact that at his age, I mean, he's he's into his 70s, um, like, like the defining point of his answer was, you know, you, you've got to let this exposure to these tools happen and you've got to let them make mistakes and they will learn yep. and you've got yep. to let them try and form their own discipline. Uh, as hard as that might feel to you in the beginning, uh, like I said, it is very, very difficult. But, he's, you know, he also made the point, like, you know, in the school system, where these tools are not, uh, they, they have no exposure to these tools at all. That's so arcane. It's incredible it, to me. Like, not, not just the handhelds, but, like, computers. Like, the, the, it, not not every student has access to a, to a computer each day. This is the most and in his words, the most important tool in, uh, of all humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And we are depriving kids the exposure to it.
1: Right. And also that like the, even the notion that there are, there are so many uh, like long-term gratifying things that you can do with a computer. Like you can use a computer to, you know, edit a, an entire documentary or, you know, write a book or, you know, I just mean like there's activities that have this, long-term satisfaction arc similar to building a treehouse. like it takes months and months to get it done like that's ultimately where kids grow towards if you let them uh whereas like if if all kids learn in school is like i I have to sit listen to the teacher all day and then uh phones and computers are all about entertainment well how is that has that helpful to them it's the most important tool but like it's only used for kind of de-stressing which is understandable, right? I mean, school is stressful.
0: Completely. So it, it's the it's their purest outlet. Mm. You know, it's, you you see kids. They they're sixteen. They come out. They get on the bus. The first thing they do is ignore the person they're sitting next to, and straight on the um, straight on the phones because they need mm. that outlet. They need that um that those dopamine hits that are so damn good at keeping us scrolling. Like you were saying before.
1: Well, and it's also like it's. I think it's all about a balance. I mean, because you it is amazing that like kids can have friends across borders and you know, like that's phones and computers are what allow us to. I remember um, going to a Sudbury uh, I did an internship in Oregon for a month uh, um, in, in a subway school there. And I was just staying with one of the teachers and um, the kid, the kid was maybe like six or no, he was a little older, maybe like eight or nine and he was playing video games with his buddy and they were just talking, like they were explaining the game to each other over the phone, you know? And so, um, I don't know, it's just this whole interactive, I think there's a lot of value to that, even though the ultimate relationship, I think is still gonna be, you know, face-to-face and you're only gonna have, you know, whatever, 10 friends or something. Like, I think that is kind of, if you don't have a good social life, social media is like a surrogate and I think that's where it gets maybe dangerous and so but then again if you provide your child with the environment where it can actually make friends why would it want to talk to strangers all the time or keep scrolling if you can you know play Monopoly together or something
0: or, or that sports team that you belong to or the yes. um, you know the the, the the chess club whatever it is whatever you, you know the kid's natural bent is uh, you know just exploring that and then that's how they socialize. That's how they make real friendships rather than being forced into a, a group of 25, 30 kids that they're told this is who you're going to be with for the next seven years. You better get on. Yeah. You know, it's it. The whole thing is just so on its head. Matt, we should, we should probably talk about some Bitcoin at some stage. <laughs> mm, sure.
1: Yeah.
0: What um, you were obviously early to find it. And I'm, you know, just chatting to you now, you, you're clearly a curious, curious person. And as you said to Lauren, like figuring out puzzles, what brought you to the opening of the rabbit hole? What, what do you remember?
1: Yeah, it's, I think, I think with these kind of things, it's always like a, you know, it's like a, like an. Uh, like a quiet accretion of things and then it reaches a threshold and then you're open to receiving. Cause like a lot of people heard about Bitcoin early on, a lot of people. And so like, what is it that like makes you, you know, put your claws in it and like really try and figure it out. So I think for me, it was, you know, one element for sure is, you know, 2005 onwards, I really dug into Austrian economics. Um, you know, I was I was um, reading a lot of that stuff with, the, with my friends when we were living in Ghent and, and Leuven, Ghent especially. And, uh, why? and so, you know, a lot of that literature is about the history of money, the history of banking. What,
0: why, why were you picking up Austrian economic books? Uh,
1: well, uh, we were subscribed to this newsletter by a guy who did all kinds of things. He was like a co-founder of a Steiner school and Waldorf school and all kinds of things. So he had this like quirky newsletter. And in one of the newsletters, he uh, did a book review of um, Democracy of the God That Failed, the, the book by Hans-Hermann Hoppe. And and then in the one after that, he was kind of talking about Rothbard. And so we were just like intrigued, like, oh, what is this stuff? And so then it was like, oh, my God, like the Austrian school is like this. And then especially it's like, oh, it's this underground thing. Like nobody talks about it in academia. And like and it made it like extra enticing. And, and so, yeah, I, like I read... Uh, like half a human action and I I read a whole bunch of other other books and uh, it was just this rabbit hole and I I love the philosophy part of it too like it's it's very much about commonsensical thinking and not like jumping straight into math like really thinking about underlying assumptions and how how can you know anything and it it comes from this very rich you know little Austrian tradition and before that it has roots in scholastics and so so it like intellectually was extremely stimulating to me. And so, so, so then like eventually in 2009, I was like, damn, like I gotta find a way to make some money. Like, you know, and, and so I started writing about, no, actually it was 2007. I started writing about the economy and like trying to solve my own problem of like, how do I, cause I was afraid of this massive collapse of the banking system and high inflation or you know, a combination of both. Um, And uh, I I just felt stuck. And so the writing helped me to like try and figure things out. And so um, I had, I started getting into newsletter writing and, um, and my whole philosophy became, there is gonna be a depression, an economic depression. It's gonna last five or 10 years. Everyone or almost everyone is gonna be wiped out. I need to solve the question, what do I wanna own in assets before disaster strikes, what is going to help me through that period, or even if there's a wealth transfer, to be on the right side of that wealth transfer, because wealth never really disappears unless there's a war. So, so I was like looking for that, um, and so I ended up thinking like, well, it's probably gold, right? I mean, gold is is a liquid asset, and and uh, it's easy to transfer, and um, and it's scarce, and it's very saleable and anyway. So, so I was a gold guy and then I, I did do travels to Latin America, partly because I wanted a plan B is like, you know, where do I live if this thing hits and what if it's really bad? Like we, my grandparents lived through the war, like, you know, it's not even long and it was on our soil and like, you know, that's where the bombs fell and, you know, so I definitely wanted a plan B. So I traveled to Latin America and, and that's where I met, um, my, um, my friends in argentina and they were literally mining bitcoin in their basement and so like you know that that you know with that background and also i guess you know my parents took us traveling to eastern europe when we were little kids like i saw purses full of you know cash bills because there was so much inflation like all these little things i think add up to like why i was like primed for being very curious about bitcoin Mate, so definitely I, I definitely don't want to credit it like i feel really lucky that i was in that place with that kind of background like it really you know magically came together i think i was very lucky
0: yeah that's that's awesome And putting in the travel as well to go in and see it because you must have been seeing and well exposed to people that this was a lifeline to them this wasn't an investment this wasn't just for number go up this was like something like holy oh yeah shit
1: yeah, because like they, they were like, you know, the, our president's crazy, like she's closing down the borders, there's capital controls, you know, like there were literal lines, not not like crazy 2001 Coralito, but like they were restricting the amount of cash that you could pull out uh, in Buenos Aires and like there were all kinds of, so they were literally worried, like, you know, how do we, how do we store savings in a way that uh, allows us flexibility in the future? And Bitcoin was the answer, even early on, it was the answer. When did and also start? how to be discreet about wealth right and the mining yeah. was nice because you could mine it and nobody knew you had it so you can just kind of have this low-key lifestyle
0: so what's the timeline of when you started uh, writing about bitcoin and your research with um i always want to say adam ant because you know being <laughs> yeah. british
1: yeah <laughs> gives but away you... your age
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Obviously it's is Adamant the, the the company that you work for and you're your editor in chief there um, i think is that the correct uh... it,
1: it, it it's it's all a, it's all a charade. it's it's not <laughs> it's just it's the company that i that i founded it but it's always been just me it's just i, I wanted a name for, for my research but i did i did start Adamant Capital which was a real company and uh, and that one was sold uh, to Blockstream
0: Okay. Right. Okay. So yeah. we're up to we're up to speed on that. So when did you start writing? To, so did you do this at the beginning? Like, right. Okay. This is, I'm going to do Bitcoin research and I'm going to start Adamant or you were already doing.
1: Yeah, no, I had a free newsletter back in 2009. And then this, you know, Belgium and Holland is a small, small world. And so this uh, publisher reached out to me and he's like, Hey, you know, I do like email newsletters. And I charged people for it. And, uh, oh, are you still there?
0: Yeah, I'm still there. Oh, here. Yeah, yeah, you're just yeah.
1: very, very still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he was just explaining about his business. And I, I knew it because I, I had been aware of his stuff. And he was basically, you know, do you want to be a writer? I was like, what do you mean? And it was like, well, you write a newsletter and we charge people money. It was like 400 euros a year. I was like, people pay that? And so he's like, yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and so... I was, I was scared witless because I had never owned a stock. And like, here I was going to be an author of like a financial newsletter. Like I had never, I didn't have a brokerage account. So I was like, okay, I need a few months. I asked him like, Hey, can I have like five months or something? And so I, d- I did a bit of travel, but also it was mostly like mentally being like, man, I'm I really going to do this. And, uh, and so in 2011, I started writing that newsletter which was about just, I did the bit of travel, that's where I discovered Bitcoin, already knowing I was gonna do a newsletter, but I was scared in the beginning. I did write about it the first few months, uh, but the price was still going down. Like they had the big bubble of 2011 where it, it jumped to, to from $1 to $30 and it had been on the way down. So I was like, oh, I can just like let it rest for a bit and I, I'm learning more about it. But I did start writing about it early on in the newsletter And then eventually it bottomed at like, you know, two, $3, I think. And, uh, and then it started going up slowly. So like in, in, I think it was February 2011 is like where I officially, you know, recommended my readers to buy it. It's like, you know, I think it's a good time. It's like, it was part of our currency portfolio. Like we had some stocks and then we had some currencies and yeah, it was like, and, and so. I, the reason why I quit the newsletter so early and in, 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 it was like summer 2013, I started looking for somebody else to write it is that I wanted to write about it full time and my readers just, and my publisher, you know, so many people still thought it was a Ponzi scheme and, you know, I, uh, I was just kind of like, I'm going to have to move on guys. And then the price went from a hundred bucks when I quit the newsletter to a thousand bucks in like, yeah, in like four months or something.
0: I was going to ask you about the pushback because we all experience it and now you're doing it as a young man at that institutional kind of level to high net worth individuals or CIOs or hedge fund managers that are reading this. Did you get any kind of like hate mail pushback, like, you know, who the hell do you think you are? Like.
1: I don't know. In terms of the profile, I think it was mostly a retail audience. Like there were some professionals, but it was mostly like a retail audience. Um, but um, but the 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 and and I think age was probably like from f- between 40 and 70 or something like. I think that was the age range. Tough crowd. But yeah, I got- Yeah, and I I would do like Q&A at the end of the newsletter. So I would kind of like allow them to, you know, vent some things and I would respond. But there were people who were literally saying like, this is crazy. This is a Ponzi scheme, you know, uh, it's 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 uh, or it's going to be shut down or uh, just all kinds of, you know, just defenses. Um, But I think that I could do it as long as it was just part of the bigger narrative and the price is going up. And so it's hard for people to be mad at, you know, something that's making the money. so I don't think I I did a survey before in, in early 2013 and about asking my readers like, hey, how many of you have bought this or that? And it turns out about 20% of 1,500 people had bought Bitcoin by that time based on the newsletter. So that's like and sometimes I, I, I meet somebody like that. They're like, hey, I was a subscriber. And like, it's like, wow, like it, it's so cool some I mean like they'll tell me like it changed my life or like it, it really made a big difference
0: it is a life-changing uh asset as we know like the what yeah. what would you say has changed most for you psychologically and and we all change I, I, it all gets a bit woo-woo at this point for some people listening but for those of us that have been around a little bit longer and you know, I love listening to John Vallis and his show because he he gets into this really really deeply and how it's affected people what what noticeable changes have you noticed in in your own persona or your your daily habits that uh, you can attribute to to Bitcoin
1: well it turned me into a uh, an optimist I think as far as you know not really personal life but more like kind of like how do I live a life in this society? Because I was, you know, studying history of banking and it's just kind of like, especially in the 20th century, it's just inflation over and over. Like in Argentina, it's just every 10 years, we have a huge bout of inflation and and society never is really allowed to heal and recover and build up savings and prosperity. And so I was just like, we're heading into this inflationary depression, gold is going to spike, but then they're gonna go back to fiat, and it was just kind of this. It really was depressing to think about this cycle just going on and on forever. And so it just really, it just really, I got so psyched learning about Bitcoin. is like, oh my god, this is gonna change society. Like it, it, it is just incredible. Um, it really turned me into like, a, I mean, obviously, it's gonna get harder before it gets better. Like you know, the depression is gonna happen. And it's not, even if you're wealthy or something, it's not fun to live in a depression. It's just not, you know, people, same with a pandemic, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's not fun to go through a pandemic. Um, But but like the, you know, the city on the hill or whatever, the light, you know, on the end of the tunnel is so much brighter now. It's just, I mean, it's, and and, you know, it just makes you excited for the next generation. So we're gonna live in a different type of society.
0: Bitcoin is hope. I mean that that's the best meme out there, yeah. isn't
1: it? No, yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, it's also like it's not like a magic wand that's gonna make you know crime go away or it's gonna make government less oppressive, or like we're still gonna have to put in the work, but it's a powerful, you know, it's like Mjolnir or something. It's like a powerful weapon of technology to, to use for, for good.
0: And if I if I bring you back to that, um, Bitcoin 2013 presentation that i was uh watching today you did a great job of describing the hierarchy of the banking system and how that's uh kind of this is why we have these cycles all the time and like inflation is never going to go away and and you know i, I don't want to pull on your kind of memory here but do you remember the um the, the way that you explain the hierarchy the, the hierarchy you have the banks and then the the, the central banks and governments and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. IMF. it's just
1: basically this it's this bureaucracy because like this system is is fundamentally vulnerable like it's a proof of stake like i mean if we want to talk about you know the it's something that applies to current day discussions the field system is a proof of stake system which means that uh, the the powerful people get to vote to the rich people. They get to vote on the future of the system, but that's inherently vulnerable. And so what happens is that checks and balances are built. And so layers and layers of management, this is the birth of bureaucracy. That's why bureaucracy exists is because it's a fundamentally vulnerable system. So you have to layer checks and checks upon checks. And so that's why, yeah, you have like commercial banks, then there's central banks and there's an organ overlooking the central bank. Maybe I think at the time, I think I said the IMF is kind of like the police. And then the Bank for International Settlements is more like the policymakers. makers. The, the central bank the of rules. central
0: banks is what you called the BIS.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. And then there was another organ that was making the rules. But the BIS is like, yeah, they're like, you know, the, the, the bank in, in Monopoly. They're the ones bailing out the banks. Um, or, or um, I, I need to. I have to. Like, I literally, I've abandoned my study of the fiat system because it's like there's no use. It's it's like studying the intricacies of the Catholic Church when the Reformation is happening. It's like, dude, like it's freedom of religion. Like that's the future. You know, not everyone is gonna live under this, this monopolized system anymore. So we don't have to, you know, spend hours and hours trying to guess what the Pope is gonna say next. So it's it's yeah, it really is this this. So that's kind of where it's a heat it's it's where a lot of the heat gets dissipated and wasted it's where all the energy gets wasted it's in these layers of bureaucracy which bitcoin does away with you don't you don't need that you can validate your own transactions with a little arduino or something um so anyway yeah so so at the time it was important to me to understand like who is going to make these decisions to try and then figure out like how is it going to go wrong and when and uh, and I think it is still going to happen. Like, we are going to have bank holidays and, and uh, bail-ins, which is what happened in, in Cyprus. That's going to happen in widespread areas. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, the bail-ins. I'm, thing. I'm
1: less I'm less scared of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thankfully, but yeah, you, you ended up at the top of that tree with the FSB, the Financial Stability Board. Is that, is that correct? Right. And like, you know, like, who are these people now? Like, it's like, what the hell? It's just unbelievable. The, the, when you follow the money, the trail just never seems to end, yeah. does it? It just gets pointier and pointier and pointier at the very, very top.
1: Yeah, but it, but it's like those old pyramids were in the beginning, they were just like too steep and they just collapse. And I think that's, you know, and they are like, you know, uh, I think it's like Tainter has his, you know, studies on like how societies collapse. And I think he's a, he's a, He's a bit of a leftist. So I think he, he kind of euphemizes the thing because basically what, what happens is the bureaucracy collapse. It's, it's not necessarily the economic base that collapses. It's more like the system that's trying to divvy up the wealth and that's trying to centralize everything. Well, that collapses. And so I, I think, yeah, yeah that, that's, and that's why, because bureaucracy is inherently uh, top heavy. Like they, they, you know, they eventually collapse on their own weight until but but sometimes they can last for a long time and you need that like gust of wind or you need something external to just topple it over not that i'm preaching revolution or anything but i mean just like you know something that fundamentally undermines it even more or even faster you know maybe like 500 years ago it was the printing press where all of a sudden people could make up their own mind in combination with you know uh global um trade and shipping which was a different class of people it was no longer the clergy So, you know, those kinds. So today it's maybe the Internet and Bitcoin and and a few other things that uh, that will cause real big change.
0: And if we're looking forward, how how do you see things playing out for Bitcoin over the next um, decade, let's say, over the next few halvings? How are you looking at that and what what are you um, able to share with us?
1: Well, I mean, gold parity is the first so that the market cap of Bitcoin will be the same as the market cap of gold. I think I need to look up the numbers again. I think we're at like five or 10% today. So we could, you know, Bitcoin could grow 10 times with regards to gold. But that's, I think that's just a milestone. I think Bitcoin is going to go beyond that uh, because it is a better money in in many ways uh, and it doesn't have the deficiencies. I think it's Seyfedin Amos who um, makes the point that at, you know fiat is very bad at transporting wealth over time but gold is very bad in transporting wealth uh physically you know uh in space which is true it's very expensive to transport gold and to store it and bitcoin solves that solves both of those issues um so the next 10 years like yeah i mean i bitcoinization is going to also mean um maybe i i really think so i think We'll start seeing of course nation states adopting bitcoin central banks buying bitcoin uh pension funds buying bitcoin but also insurance companies life insurance companies and so to me the ultimate this is like my my um pet peeve is like bitcoin based life insurance i think that is what because right now people are trapped in the welfare trap there. They live in the welfare state. The state has all these bloated promises that they can never keep about like social security and your pensions. And it's all invested in government bonds that are going to be worthless. And so what's going to be the alternative? And I think it's going to be a return to people having more agency. And, um, and so of course with Bitcoin, you can save in hard money, but there's, there's, there's an unpredictability to life. Like you can't always predict how long you'll be able to make money for your family, for example, and life. And that's where life insurance becomes like a tool that you can use from, I don't know, you're 20 years old and you, you get that policy. And if you happen to die at 23 with a, you know, a two-year-old child, you you know, your family is going to be taken care of. Like that's, that's how it works. Uh, And so I think that's an important element that we'll start seeing more of in, in, you know, the next five, 10 years.
0: Yeah, I think that's even lined up already because uh, Nydig or NYdig, whatever you want to call them, uh, they had the uh, the guy come over from the um, the board of uh, I forget the exact name, but the guy that's very connected with all of the life insurance companies uh, within that state and across America, uh, they're doing the work, right? It's already well, being I mean, done.
1: And it's insane if you think about it. Like life insurance used to be the same size as the banking industry in mm-hmm. the U.S. The same size. Like, look around Chicago. Look around these old cities. A lot of buildings say Mutual, this and that. Well, those were life insurance companies. Like, they they were so, but 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 they got. They got starved over time because, um, they the policy is denominated in the money of the country, which is fiat. And so, if you have a one million dollar life insurance policy, well, yeah, they can guarantee that it'll be there but you don't know what it's gonna be worth 20, 30 years from now. So like the value proposition has been on the decline and you see this in studies, like if you look at life insurance in Brazil, it's even worse because they have even more inflation. But like once you change back to a hard money is where you can see, I mean, literally a decline of fractional reserve banking because the, the the profits are way lower. They can't mint their own loans anymore. And a revival of that other you know institution that's way more focused on saving and passing things on to the next generation um to me that's yeah and and i mean what, uh, i was invited to do a presentation for the um i forget the name of the organ but basically for the ceo and and a few people of fidelity in boston i did that uh, 2 years ago and and that this was the main thing like they the people who invited me they're like yeah, you know, maybe talk about like Bitcoin valuation and different models to value Bitcoin. It's like, because, you know, you're doing your fund and, you know, I don't know. I was just excited to be there. I, I, and and I, I wanted to just convey that. It's like, I think life insurance is the biggest thing. After Bitcoin, it'll be Bitcoin-denominated life insurance. Like that is going to be serving billions of people in in, you know, the next hundred years. Anyway, so I, I plugged it in there and I got a few questions about it. Uh, so I'm really trying to like, and I'm glad Nidig is doing it. The only challenge is that as the regulation, of course, you know there's a lot of a lot of language in in state legislation and and internationally as well around what is allowed and what is not. It's a very conservative industry. and of course, you know, the government loves it when you say that, you know, fiat money is the safest place to be and short-term bonds. And so we're going to have to see some changes in in uh, in legislation to really allow for significant Bitcoin allocation of these life insurance companies.
0: That was the biggest signal for me. You know, we're always trying to find the signal, filter the signal from the noise. But the signal that life insurance companies, companies that you know, have been built on risk assessment or risk analysis. They know this inside out. They know exactly what they're doing. And they are on the verge of getting clearance, hopefully, fingers crossed, like you said, you know, getting around these regulations to invest in Bitcoin. That makes Bitcoin a risk-off asset for so many other people, so many other institutions, high net worth individuals, family yeah. offices you name it. Yeah. It's huge.
1: Yeah. No, I mean... know of all the financial institutions life insurance companies are the ones who supposedly have the longest time horizon like they invest with decades and decades in mind uh so and so it's a very different signal to have a few vcs invest in coinbase versus or a few hedge funds versus uh this kind of stuff yeah
0: pure signal i love it all right we should probably start wrapping up but before we do i always ask uh the last question and I mean, you've already dispensed so many orange pills in uh, in the time that you've been writing, but if you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why?
1: Oh, like a person or an institution? Yeah, up a to person. you. A person.
0: Yeah, go with a person.
1: I mean, I would say Jeff Bezos, really, I think that, you know, he's... He's probably the greatest entrepreneur of the last, you know, 20 years. Um, He has enormous influence in terms of, you know, making decisions. Everybody's afraid of Amazon, uh, you know, whatever industry they're at in terms of competition. Um, And and also he has this track record, like with the Long Now Foundation, and, you know, you know, travels into space of like having this really long time horizon, um, and, and he was so visionary early on to see that the everything store is what the internet makes possible. And he just executed it all day. I'm just, I'm very, I'm a great admirer of his. And, and so I think that would be an amazing signal if, if Amazon started to add Bitcoin to their treasury
0: It'd be a huge miss, wouldn't it, if the everything store did not accept Bitcoin from like <laughs> being the being the everything currency of the world. Like, you know, it's it's not yeah. you know, completely permissionless. Anybody can own a Bitcoin, whereas very few mm. people can own a US dollar or a pound or a yen, you know, that's very tied to that specific yeah. uh, nation state. Come on, Jeff, wake up. Like, what's going on?
1: Well, I mean, you, I think to their credit, what they have not done which, you know, uh, a company with a shorter time horizon might've done is like to launch their own token. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like in 2017, everyone was like, but all the companies, they're gonna have their own tokens. And like, and it's it's a, it's a bad idea I, I, for many reasons. But um, I think, yeah, I think, I think there's a difference though between accepting as a payment versus saving in it. The biggest signal would be like, yeah to have some serious allocation from the treasury
0: offering a discount on their products to attract bitcoin which they can put strength in a balance sheet
1: well yeah and 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 in a way they would just be using the purse.io business model you know purse already does it where you i think it's that you buy it's basically intermediating between people in developing countries who've accumulated amazon credit and then uh, bitcoin savers and they they make that match and as a result you get like 5 or 10% off all your purchases if you use bitcoin through i don't know if purse exists anymore but i think so so amazon could basically do it for themselves like they could you know make make a market and, and 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 be very profitable probably it's probably a regulatory thing you know if if there's any any reason for the delay it's probably like the lawyers are like uh oh, we're not sure about this
0: I forgot to ask you before the last question. So I'll ask you now, what's been your biggest surprise within Bitcoin over the last year?
1: Oh, the last year. Uh, Let's see. I mean, El Salvador, really. It's like, it's a a different thing to talk about. Yeah, 2020 is going to be like the Windows 1995 moment, like 7% adoption in the US. Like it's the breakthrough, you know, all that stuff. Or like, you know in the future some government is gonna but like to actually see it happen it just blew me away it's like it doesn't matter to me that it's a small country it's like an incredible signal that they're doing it in defiance of the imf fear-mongering and whatever and it's imperfect of course but it's like we're off to the races you know like you know and and, and oh my god it's just and and, and they're probably already seeing like people wanting to move there. It's like the first mover advantage, right? And so that is going to create a run. It's like, we used to be afraid of runs on the bank, but like, this is going to be like a melt up. Like everybody runs to Bitcoin and it just keeps melting up. Like I, it's, it's, I don't know, it's hard to fathom how big it is already. And it's going to be even bigger. Like, it's just unstoppable. It's like TCP IP, like, you know, is it going to fail? Or like the English language is just... It's The best protocol out there, and so I think it's just going to continue to grow, grow, grow.
0: Were you at the conference when uh, when the announcement was made? Did you make it across to Miami? Uh,
1: no, I, I had to see it uh, online. No, I wish I was there. It was, it was I, I did see the recording, and I met Jack a few times before. His parents are awesome, too.
0: Will you be going along to the next one in Miami? Are you, uh, still making it, plans
1: it kind of depends on i might we might be traveling elsewhere or or i'm, I'm not sure i i would like to uh, i'm not really i was like a real conference what is the word tiger uh yeah like 2013 to 2017 i think i went to really a lot of them but so i'm a i'm a little bit like i'm, I'm trying to focus more on the long term and often conferences is like networking and you know like things being launched and it's exciting but but also i I don't know. It's like
0: a priorities thing. I was going to say, we're you doing a definitely. If, if
1: anyone wants to get involved in Bitcoin, I would say, yeah, man. Like you know, just just network your way all around the room and don't be pushy. Like just really try to meet interesting people. I think conferences are 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 amazing places to really get to to kind of you know get get a start in in a, in a given industry. And as far as I know, Bitcoin conferences are very welcoming. Especially if you've put in some work of yourself and there's you you've written something or is there something that you some code that you contribute to an open source thing or I would definitely say uh you know, maybe now the, the clubhouse, you know, rooms are taking some part of that over. But uh to me it was incredibly helpful.
0: We don't get to hang in the bar with the plebs, right? If you're on clubhouse. I think that's what's attracting a lot of people, you know, the idea of actually in person meeting yeah. um, you know you can go and watch the talks and whatever else but if the conference room is packed don't worry just hang out in the hallways and uh, get in the bars and organize dinners and stuff
1: well and and, and it's it's I think it's just kind of circle back to schooling like I think a lot of people don't get as much value out of conferences because they've been programmed the teacher is talking I need to sit down and take notes whereas like I taught myself eventually to just not go to any of the talks, literally none. And I would just hang out all the time. And I, I was just checking actually, but I, I have it here somewhere. Um, I had this box of like old uh, business cards and like, I still have like a stack this big from uh, from 2013, like the 2013 Bitcoin conference. And like, you know, it's like Fred, the co-founder of Coinbase and like the, you know and I, I know for a fact I had conversations with all these people. So that's the real value. I think of like, you know, going to a, con- it's not to see the speaker and yeah, maybe talk to the speaker after he's done, but like, anyway, like Wences. like, I, m- I met him in 2013 as well. And he was like, yeah, if you're ever in Buenos Aires, you know, just step by. And that was the very, you know, very sobered. like, you know, so it's like, there are people like that who have a low profile now because they're, they're, they still need to do great things that are going to be walking around there too.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Well, we hope to get there this year. So, uh, if we do, um, I think you're based oh, yeah. in you're based in Austin, right? I, I think. Yep. Y- yep. It'll be great to get over there at some point as well and go and see the Unchained guys because uh, they're doing amazing work. Um, do, do you go along to their big? They they do the uh, the meetups, right? The uh, the Bit Dev meetups.
1: Yeah, they do. I mean, I, once it's once it's, I'm not sure. I, I basically I've opted out since the pandemic for the most part. I, I do keep in touch, but I, I've kind of uh, opted out of most of the the dev meetings. But I definitely, it's awesome to see how many people are moving in town and, and how vibrant it all is. Um, I definitely plan to pick it up again.
0: Excellent. Well, so thanks so much for your time, mate. It's been uh, it's been great to get to know you uh, a little bit better. And thanks again, like I said, at the start of the show. Yeah, brilliant that uh, you, you started writing when you did and what you did. And it's really been uh, very helpful for me. And uh, obviously that's gonna affect my whole family and uh, and generations to come. So big thanks.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, hopefully we'll do this again another time.
1: For sure, yeah. All
0: right, man. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that one with Tur. I certainly did. Loved going down the rabbit hole of alternative education with him, can't believe he got to spend some time at dinner with John Taylor Ghetto try and find that clip if you can uh, or maybe to, I'll ask him to you know, resend it out again so you guys can see it it's, it's crazy um, yeah, like I said Ter was a, a huge influence on, on my thinking and uh, you know, a big heartfelt thanks guys If you want to get yourself out to Miami this year to visit that conference, it is possible even if you are across the pond and even if travel restrictions at the moment are not in your favor, they've got you covered. If you buy a ticket and you can't travel at the point of the conference because of these regulations, you will be fully funded. But like I said at the beginning, these tickets go up in value and you are able to resell them to whoever wants to go who's missed the boat Uh, so you will end up making money on the ticket don't worry about that and you will sell it to somebody who will be very very willing to pay you in Bitcoin for that ticket don't ever doubt that so it's definitely something worth thinking about if you are in Europe and worried about getting across there don't forget to please check out the other show sponsors that's coinfloor.co.uk that's swanbitcoin.com and that's relay.ch all forward slash bitten will unlock some extra little goodies for you but you know the most important thing to do is take control of your keys not your keys not your coins get control take the coins off the apps off the exchanges have them in your possession you can use shiftcrypto.ch/ forward slash bitten go look for the bitbox o2 bitcoin only edition hardware wallet i look forward to the
1: next show guys thank you so much